He started out the new year with resolutions. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Did you make any new year resolutions? And uh, not surprisingly, study after study concludes that we are not always that faithful to those new year resolutions. In fact, uh, studies show exactly when we tend to depart from those resolutions. Now, uh, again, not surprising, but the number one resolution everybody makes at the first of the year is to get fit, to exercise more. So in, in the first week of January, gym memberships skyrocket across America. Again, not too surprising. By the third week of January, attendance drops off dramatically at those gyms. In fact, studies have shown it's so predictable that by February 9, in fact, February 9th or the, the first or second week of February, sociologists designate what they call quitting day. And, and they designate that because not only do gym memberships drop off, but fast food consumption picks up. You're like, I am done with this. Where is that McDonald's when you need it? Resolutions can be a good thing. If they refresh our commitments, if they help us get, get bad habits out of the way, get back into good habits, that can be a good thing. And a lot of times Christians make fresh commitments and new resolutions as we start the new year. I resolve to read the Bible in a year. I resolve to be back in church. I resolve to participate in this ministry, that ministry. I resolve to have my quiet time on a regular basis. Good for you. Good for you. But remember, your walk with Christ doesn't depend on your resolutions. It's a lifestyle commitment. It is a decision to follow Christ all of your life. And if you've dropped off on that and you see that, that's a good thing. Make a fresh commitment. Repent of that. Make a fresh commitment. <clears throat> but remember, following Christ is not a task on your calendar. It's a lifestyle. It's your life commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. So refresh yourself in that in 2024. And maybe you're glad to see 2023 in the rearview mirror. Good riddance. Or maybe it was the best year of your life. Maybe you're a little anxious with 2024 coming up, or maybe you anticipate with hope great things are going to happen in 2024. Either way, God is still God. Whatever is going on in your life, God is still God, and He is our God. And the good news is He already knows what's coming up. He's just asking you to trust Him for it and trust Him with it, whatever happens. Isn't that good news? Let me pray for us again. Father, we pause in this moment so thankful, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Your word says, even when we are not faithful, you are always faithful because you cannot do otherwise. That's your nature. You always love us, even, even when we doubt, even when we struggle, even, God, when sometimes we are anxious or we even doubt you. You still love us and care for us. So today, God, let this first Sunday of 2024 for all of us be that refreshing time, that realization, that recommitment, God, uh, to bolster our faith in you, to trust you again for whatever lies ahead. And together, God, we praise you and thank you that you are always our God. You're always the same. And whatever's happening or whatever may happen, God, you are there with us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, this morning we return to the book of 1 Peter. We have three more installments in our series that we took most of 2023 in. So find in your Bible with me 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and hold your place there for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Now you may recall when we wrapped up the installments in 2023, where we stopped was Peter's declaration that God cares for you. You remember him saying that, humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So that might surprise you what he says next, but it's very important and very significant that where we pick up this morning uh, comes right out of his declaration that you can cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Uh, to grasp the significance of this, remember who he's talking to. This letter Peter wrote to early believers who were suffering for their faith. Uh, their first time suffering as Christians. And they had been displaced out of their homes into another part of the empire in Asia Minor. And he was writing to them to remind them who God is, to remind them of their living hope in Christ, to remind them that God sustains them and cares for them no matter what, to remind them that God is always with them, and to instruct them on how to behave as believers living in a hostile world, how to engage that world, how to interact in that world. And that's been the bulk of the letter as he has instructed them and us as we live increasingly in a hostile culture. So now as he's wrapping up the letter, he's giving the church specific instructions on being believers and being a church in this hostile culture to these believers suffering for their faith. So uh, with this, he has a word for all of us who suffer. We suffer in this world. We suffer sickness, uh, heartbreak. We suffer sometimes even ridicule or persecution because of our faith. And what he is speaking to them, he is speaking to us through God's providence. What we need to learn when we suffer as believers. So remember, as we're going to read verse 8, we're picking up from where he has just said, God cares for you, cast all your anxiety on him, all that you're worried about. Give it to him because he cares for you. And then in verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone that he can devour. Now remember, he's talking to Christians. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Two months ago, the residents of a small suburb of Rome, Italy, woke up to a startling sight, a full-grown male lion strolling through their streets. His name is Kimba, and Kimba had escaped from a local zoo and decided he would visit this little town. So for hours, until someone could get there from the zoo to corral him and take him back home, he just strolled around the streets. Of course, that's a startling thing to see. Gets your attention, may even scares you, scare you just a bit. The good news was, he didn't have any interest in hurting anyone. He wasn't on the hunt. He was on a stroll, out seeing the sight. But 
But the very appearance of the lion is startling, unnerving, even frightening. So why is it, Peter says, that we, ha we have an enemy in our midst who prowls like a lion and most of the time we don't care? This lion should get our attention. But Peter points out there's no reason to fear. You just need to pay attention. As he writes this very well-known passage to these believers, we need to put it in context. There is an enemy, like a lion, prowling around in the midst of believers, seeking someone to devour. Most of us know that Satan is depicted in Scripture as the enemy of humanity, and specifically here, the enemy of all Christians and of the church. And we know from that, as, as Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, the fundamental ammunition of the enemy, of Satan himself, is the lie. He is a liar. In fact, Jesus calls him the father of lies and says there is no truth in him at all. That means it's impossible for Satan to speak the truth. It's not in his nature. He only lies. That's all he can do. But that's a weapon that we tend to be very susceptible to in our fallen nature. In those lies, he frequently tempts us to sin. He also tempts us to complacency and tempts us to laziness and tempts us to busyness. He does all of these things to take us out of the battle, to, take us at, to make us ineffective for Christ. If he can get us in sin, he makes us ineffective or he, he makes us think we are. But even more quietly, if he can make us complacent, well, I don't care about my faith, I'm fine. If he can make us lazy, I don't want to do anything for Christ. That's too inconvenient. That's too uncomfortable. I'm too busy. I'm too busy to share my faith. I'm too busy to read my Bible. I'm too busy to go to church, but Christmas and Easter and occasionally otherwise. Satan's fine with that. He's good with that. Stay out of the game. Stay out of the battle. But there's another kind of Christian that he's on the prowl for. And that's the Christian that Peter is specifically speaking to here. It's the Christian who's suffering. In this case, his, his readers, suffering because they are Christians. For the first time in human history, People are suffering because they are Christians. Losing jobs, losing promotions, losing family members, kicked out of their homes, unable to buy in the marketplace for no other reasons than they are unwilling to bow their knee to the Caesar. They're unwilling to have, they've cleansed their homes of household idols. These have become the weird people, the outcasts. We want nothing to do with him. They were even considered heretics because they did not practice idolatry. They worshipped this God named Jesus. And they were suffering for it. And that kind of suffering, Satan comes in and he says, listen, if God really loved you, that wouldn't be happening. If you were right to follow Christ, you wouldn't be suffering. There's something wrong with your faith. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care for you. Why cast your anxiety? Why cast your burdens on a God who clearly doesn't care for you if you're suffering? That's the lie that Peter targets. 
And it's a common lie even today among Christians. We look across the aisle and -and so-and-so looks like they're doing great. Why aren't they suffering? Why am I going through what I'm going through? I'm a good Christian, or at least I thought I was, and we draw this weird conclusion that God doesn't love me as much as God loves him or loves her. And that's the lie that Peter addresses in this passage. That's the battle in the war that we'll address this morning. I want us to go back to the passage and consider your strategic defense against Satan's attack on your faith. An attack that says, you must doubt God. He does not care about you. Doubt God. Don't trust him. Doubt God. Turn your back on him. He does not care about you. You wouldn't be going through what you're going through if God cared about you. Go ahead and go back to that sin. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care about you. Don't participate in the church. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care about you. So we want to look at your strategic defense back in this passage. How can we stand firm in our faith? How can we bolster our faith in the face of that kind of temptation, that lie from Satan? Go back there with me. I want you to see three components with me of our strategic defense against this lie from Satan, this this effort to make us doubt the love, the care, and the faithfulness of our God in times of suffering. Uh, The first component of your defense is to know your enemy. To know your enemy. Uh, Now Peter says, your adversary. Christians, he's talking to you. This is your adversary, he says. And you need to know his nature. You need to know how to recognize when he is at work. So the first thing to do is to know your enemy. And he says, Knowing your enemy means two things. It means know his identity. Who is your true enemy? Now, why put it this way? Because the emphasis is on those first two words, your adversary. Your adversary, he says to the believers way back then, is not the Roman emperor. Your adversary is not your family members that are throwing you out of your home. Your adversary is not that employer that will not give you a raise. It's not that person in the marketplace that will not sell you food. That's not your enemy. That's not your adversary. All of that comes about because you have one enemy in the faith. And he is the enemy of every human being, but he's the enemy of Christians in particular. Know your enemy. Uh, Peter refers to him right there as your adversary. And it translates a Greek word, that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Now elsewhere, when you have the word Satan or adversary referring to Satan in your New Testament, it's translating a different word. Uh, and, but it, it kind of means the same thing, typically means the same, same thing. Peter picks this word uh, because it, it refers to the accuser in a courtroom or the enemy on the field of battle. And he says, your enemy, your real enemy is the devil. That's who he is. The Greek word translated devil is really complicated. It means devil. It gives us our word, our English word, diabolical. He is strategically evil. 
Remember that. Satan is strategically evil. He knows how to bring people down. So you and I must know our enemy. We must know his character. Again, Jesus says he's the father of lies. We must remember his primary dominant character trait is to lie. He will never tell you the truth. The only way you're going to get the truth is to have God's truth, and the only way to have God's truth is to know the Word of God. Just that simple. So know his identity, first of all. Then second, Peter says, understand and know his purpose, his strategy, his tactic. He is like a lion, uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, anyone among Christians, that he can devour. Now notice the actions that take place there. He's a a lion on the prowl. He's a hunter. He's looking for prey amidst believers in the church. But specifically, he's roaring. Notice that? He's prowling, but he's roaring as he prowls. Uh, In this context, Peter is picturing the lion in the field hunting prey that roars to strike fear and instill intimidation in the hearts of others. The roaring is the suffering. It's the persecution. It's a picture of that. Uh, that Satan is using that in the life of the believer to make them afraid, to make them question God, to, to intimidate them and make them think they can't make it, that God is not with them. And he's prowling around looking for anyone that this will work on. Anyone, that is, whom he can devour. Pretty graphic picture, isn't it? It's a picture of that believer who has turned their backs on trusting God in their suffering. And they become vulnerable. It's a picture of the wounded animal on the Serengeti that's easy prey for the pride of lions. That comes along behind the herd looking for someone to devour. It's a reminder that your doubt in God never strengthens you. It weakens you. It's your faith in God that strengthens you. Understand his purpose is to bring you down. To hunt you down and to bring you down. That's Satan's purpose. That's what he wants to do. So the first component of your strategic defense is to know your enemy. You know his identity, and you know his purpose. We need to remember that in this world we live in, when there is so much turmoil and chaos, while there are so many we disagree with, so many things we struggle about, so much crime, so much devastation, the real enemy behind it is Satan himself. We need to remember in this political year, this election year coming up, Now, while we might not all vote the same, those that don't vote the way we do, that's not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. And no matter how you vote, Christian, listen, no matter how you vote, you follow Christ. He is your Lord. He is your master. Sometimes Satan knows that better than we do. We get so caught up in the cultural chaos of the age, on social media, in the news, We play right into his hands. We forget who it is that we trust, who we follow, and who it is that wants to bring us down. 
who it is that wants to distract us, who it is that wants to devour our faith and make us weak. So remember who your enemy is. Remember who your enemy is. Know your enemy, then, then Peter says second, practice your strategy. Practice your strategy. Here's what you do. Now the Bible includes in this, and I'll bring out a couple of things in just a moment, uh, Peter doesn't try to unpack everything the believer should be doing, but what he says is notable as your strategy in your defense against the evil one who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And the first thing he says is stay alert. Stay alert. Sober-minded and alert, he says. Uh, two different phrases and words that uh, target the same concept that the battle is first and foremost in the mind. Satan is seeking to instill doubt in your mind about God, to take the faith out of your mind. This is why the Apostle Paul says what believers should be doing is taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Everything you think should be aligned with the Word of God, and you should give Satan no room to get in your mind and plant doubts in your mind. You should give the culture no space to put ungodly things into your head or into your mind. Sober-minded means to be clear thinking about the things of God. A sober-minded person is in the Word of God and in prayer and knows the difference between what God says and what Satan says. The sober-minded person recognizes the work of God and recognizes the temptation of Satan. Sober-minded means clear thinking. Alert means paying attention to who's at work, what spiritual warfare is going on. Paying attention so you recognize Satan when he comes after you. So the first part of your strategy against him is to stay alert. And the way to stay alert is to invest yourself in the way God thinks, in prayer and in the Word of God. And I'll tell you honestly, if you're not doing that, you are susceptible to the kind of doubt that Satan wants to sow in your life. The enemy's looking at you. If you're spending no time in God's Word, no time in prayer, no time in serious fellowship with other believers, if you are letting those thoughts into your mind, oh, well, God would do this if he really loved me. If God really cared about me, why would I trust God if this is going on in my life? To fortify your faith, to stay alert, to know the difference between what God is saying and doing and what Satan is saying and doing, you've got to be in the Word of God. And then he says, secondly, as part of your strategy, to resist actively. To resist actively. Resist him, Peter says, firm in the faith. How do you resist him? You're firm in the faith. That's what the phrase means. You're growing in your faith. You become stronger against Satan. You resist him. Uh, the, the, the Christian that is winning the battle of the mind against Satan is the Christian who is actively resisting him. The Christian who is actively knowing God's word, applying that to their lives. It's the Christian who is not passive or complacent. Believes God. Trusts God. And being alert recognizes when Satan's coming and resists him actively. 
not passively, but actively. Uh, James would put it this way. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Satan runs into resistance when there's a Christian committed to the faith. The faithful believer in the Word of God, in prayer, drawing near to Christ and the gospel, serving Christ faithfully, that's resistance. Satan can't really get near that because that person is building faith, not denying God's love, but building faith in a loving God. And when suffering comes, that person is prepared to confront that suffering. Show me a complacent Christian who's unprepared and, and not ready for battle, and I'll show you the one that Satan is preying on right now. In 1836, Texas declared its independence from Mexico. It would not be long at all before the Alamo was attacked, but once Texas declared independence, they knew they had to have an army. So they called upon Sam Houston to come on board to be the commander-in-chief of the Army of Rebellion in Texas. And when he arrived to meet his army for the very first time, he was shocked and dismayed and deeply disheartened by what he saw. 376 men, almost none of them had weapons, ill-equipped, none of them had been trained to fight in battles or in the army, except a, a, a small number, a small few that he knew personally. And this was the Army of Rebellion that was going to face against Santa Ana, and thousands of well-trained Mexican troops that at that moment were marching into Texas from Mexico. So right then, Sam Houston made a plan that for a month would make him a mockery of nearly every state government in the United States, nearly every leader in the United States, and nearly his whole army. But it was a strategy, a strategy of retreat. And what Sam Houston did is he took that 300, less than 400 men with him and they traveled away from Santa Ana's army, away from the Alamo. And every time he stopped and camped, they spent days in training and gathering provisions and ammunition and in fortifying until Santa Ana got any closer and then they would move away again and they would move around Texas and they would go to another place. He called it later strategic retreat. What he was really doing was fortifying and training and preparing the army for the inevitable battle that would come. He was not complacent and he told his army not to be complacent. And about a month later, they met Santa Ana's army at San Jacinto, at a river. They surprised and ambushed an army of nearly 2,000 well-trained Mexicans with less than 800 rebels. But those rebels were fully armed and fully prepared. Santa Ana's army was complacent and passive. They didn't think they had anything to worry about. A small number like that is going to attack their army? It was a rout. They destroyed Santa Ana's army, captured Santa Ana himself, and the war ended. Let Satan be the one who's complacent, not you. You be the one who's prepared, practicing resistance with a clear strategy because you know the battle's coming. You be prepared and practice that strategy. So know your enemy, practice your strategy. Then third, Peter says, remember your family. Remember your family 
of faith. While you're doing this, you know, he says, that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. That is, throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, One of Satan's strategies 